persuade us that there must be a variety in the different institutions of the states of the union, that the variety necessarily proceeds from a variety of soils, climate, and the faces of the country, and that difference in the natural features of the states. I agree to all that. Have, the, have these very features ever produced any difficulty amongst us? Not at all. Have we ever had any quarrel over the fact that they have laws in Louisiana designed to regulate the commerce that springs from the production of sugar, or because we have different class relative to the production of flour in this state? Have they produced any differences? Not at all. They are the very cements of this union. They don't make the house a house divided against itself. They are the props that hold up the house and sustain the union. Well, welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. That was a short selection from Lincoln's hour and a half reply to Stephen Douglas in the third debate, the third of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, the one held in Jonesboro, the farthest south of all the seven Lincoln-Douglas debates. Uh, and in this episode, we'll look at the third and fourth debates, the ones in Jonesboro and the ones in, in, in Charleston. Uh, and these these make up, of course, the, the, the third and fourth of seven of the Lincoln-Douglas debates that took place in the fall of 1858, which, uh, in which the two candidates tried to persuade the voters to elect representatives to the House who would vote for one of them to be the senator from, from Illinois. <clears throat> so if you're just joining us, this is the middle of a series on the political thought and the writings and the ideas of Abraham Lincoln. Um, we've looked previously at his, his youthful political writing and uh, we're now to the Lincoln-Douglas debates, the end of the first volume of the Library of America collection of, of Lincoln's writings. Um, now, my overall feelings about these two debates are they're, they're some of Lincoln's worst performances, I think, in these. I, um, as I said in the last episode, I've been reading them, but I've also been watching them. Um, the, the reenactments that were um, not put on by C-SPAN, but covered by C-SPAN, right? C-SPAN covered them like any other political event with commentators, uh, historians, and then they showed the speech, the speeches, the debate, and then have some kind of follow-up. I haven't watched necessarily all of the commentary on it, but I have watched the, the debates on the C-SPAN website. It's kind of cool that they're still up there. It's a great resource for these little political speeches and, and all the stuff is up there. Not many hits, not many views on those, unfortunately. But um, it's kind of interesting that they're still up there. Um, I've been watching those, and and you know I try not to think too much about the performance because the performances there, the acting's a bit bit mixed uh, in those different. Um, so some have Lincoln with a beard, which really annoyed me actually, because Lincoln didn't get his beard till his campaign until he campaigned for president. Of course, uh, he he got a letter from a young girl who told him she wear a beard, and he apparently took up that advice. Um, but anyways, there's the iconic vision of Lincoln. I guess I guess that's why people did that. Um, but I try to keep, not keep that in mind and let it affect how I read these too much, but I do think, I, I think it, it comes from the actual words that Lincoln said in that he was still very much on the defensive in debates three and four. It's not till the fifth debate and the sixth and seventh debate, which we'll look at in the next episode, where really 
he really elevates the debate to a moral dimension. And, and I think you got to look at these almost as a whole. And I do think each debate has kind of its own issues and focus, although there is a lot of repetition in all of them, as you would expect. These are essentially the equivalent of stump speeches in which the candidates went around and kind of gave the same messages to different audiences and different, different voters. And so there's a lot of repetition on issues, but they're also evolving and, and developing and responding to things that happened in previous debates. Um, I think um, in the first debate, in the first debate, uh, you, ha you have a couple attacks by um, Stephen Douglas that Lincoln has to respond to. The attack that the Republican Party is radical and, 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 sh and driven by its most radical interests, and, and Lincoln's a part of that. You have um, this kind of Trumbull-Lincoln conspiracy theory that, that kind of goes on in, in these debates a little bit. You got that. You have um, his very clear argument about popular sovereignty and democracy as the solution to the sectional crisis, which it, it's hard to argue against, right? Because essentially Douglas is saying, I'm just doing what the people want, you know, popular sovereignty in the territory. And Lincoln has to then come down and say, no, we need the government to actually, you know, stop the expansion of territory in this in the expansion of slavery to the territories even if it goes against popular wishes so he's got to articulate that in a way and it's until he starts articulating that morally that i think his his defenses are kind of wobbly he's also got the house divided speech because you know he's saying you know he's, he's got lincoln on the record saying house divided against itself can't stand which seems in douglas's view to be a slight against the founders for creating a divided nation right so Lincoln's response is kind of the first debate is responding to all these things, right? Now, in the second debate, of course, Lincoln gets to go first. So this gives him some advantage, but he spends that whole f debate responding to a series of interrogatories, a series of questions that, that Douglas gave him. So even in that debate, Douglas seemed to have the upper hand in a way, because and Lincoln almost kind of seeded that by saying, I'm going to respond to your questions. And the first, instead of like laying out a progress, you know, a assertive platform. And of course, the third debate is going to start with Douglas speaking again. So again, we're going to have, we're going to, we're going to see Lincoln on the defensive. Um, it's really the fifth debate where he breaks free of this, I think. Um, and that's, that's my reading of it. Maybe an expert out there who knows more can, can give, can give their own commentary on that. And maybe there's something more in the third and fourth debate that, that put Lincoln in a, in a, in a brighter light. But um, I think one of these is, is very much repetition of previous issues. And the fourth debate in particular, it's really bogged down. Um, Lincoln spends most of his time talking about like internal party politics within the Republican Party and, and, and basically taking a, an attack by Trumbull against Stephen Douglas and, and, and basically quoting it and spending a lot of his time quoting another thinker, another, another politician. And it doesn't make Lincoln look um, like he's coming forward with really his values. And that's where he shines, right? That's where he really shines. And that's what the last three debates you see much more of. Um, so anyways, that's my interest. That's my opening feeling about it. So this isn't going to be a super long episode because I, I do think these debates aren't as, aren't as significant as maybe the first and second um, and, and the fifth, sixth, and seventh. You know, I, one thing I forgot to mention about the second debate where, where you do see Lincoln shine a little bit is the he is able to posit a contradiction between Dred Scott and popular sovereignty, right? Where he basically challenges Douglas to say, you know, how is it popular sovereignty if the Supreme Court says anyone can bring their property into the territories, right? Uh, if, if that's true, then if the people of territorial Kansas decide they don't want slavery, there's nothing to stop them, right? The territories are managed by Congress. 
And Douglas's response to that is called the Freeport Doctrine, Freeport being where that second debate was, where he says, well, of course, if there are no local laws for slavery, someone can bring in their property, but there's, there might be laws against um, using that property, right? And he gives the example, actually, I think it's actually in this third debate, maybe he gives the example of if someone brings 100 pounds of, or 100 liters of, of liquor, 100 gallons, I guess it would be in those days, 100 gallons of liquor into a territory, and the territory decides to embrace uh, dry laws, you know, they can bring in their property. There's nothing stopping them from doing that, but he can't, they can't use it, right? So there would still be popular sovereignty would still trump the Dred Scott decision. That, that's how he gets around that, and this actually angered some pro-slavery Democrats. Um, remember, Stephen Douglas is essentially the leader of the Democratic Party at this point in history, the most prominent um, figure in the Democratic Party. So these, these debates, although they're for a local election, an Illinois election, they, they have some eyes, um, especially after the book gets published. And the Lincoln-Douglas debates get out there in the context of the Lincoln uh, running, run for president. And that's when Southerners start to say, no, we can't accept this guy as president, no matter, you know, in any case. But anyways, moving on, the third debate. Um, this, this debate begins with Douglas. So it's Douglas for an hour, Lincoln for an hour and a half, and then Douglas for a half hour rejoinder. So this debate's in Jonesboro. And um, a lot of this is review. Again, uh, Douglas's points here, he's pretty consistent. I'll give him that. He doesn't really waver too much from his, his essential principles. He, he's got an easy case to make. It's just like, let the people decide, right? The, let it be democratic. Um, now, he opens his comments with a review of the new party system and the Compromise of 1815. This is something he said in an earlier debate. Essentially, in the old days, in the good old days of Compromise of 1850, we had two political parties, both national, both could, uh, could get voters across the country, and both supported the Compromise of 1850. And of course, the Compromise of 1850 opened up Utah and New Mexico territories to slavery on the principle of popular sovereignty. Right? Um, now, the debate going on here between Lincoln and Douglas is, does this undo the Missouri? Is, is this, is, does Kansas and Nebraska follow this precedent or does it do something new by breaking the Missouri Compromise? Remember, the Missouri Compromise only applied to the Louisiana territories. Uh, it didn't go all the way to the Pacific Ocean, right? That's what some people tried to say. Well, let's just extend the Missouri Compromise line to, to the Pacific Ocean. But the, the Compromise of 1850 dealt with new, new added territory, right? Much of which already was pretty free of slavery because Mexico was a, didn't have slavery. Um, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, of course, opened up territory that was under the Missouri Compromise, free from slavery for all time, to, um, to the potential, to, to popular sovereignty. Uh, so there's a lot of debate about that. But what Douglas can do is say, well, we, our party, is doing what the Whig Party used to do, and that is stand up for national issues, debate things like the tariff, and, and get votes on both, in both North and South, East and West. Um, so a lot of this is rehashing actually that first debate that the Republicans are instead a party of abolitionists, a party of radicals, um, that Lincoln supports social equality. Now, Jonesboro is the farthest south of all these debates. It's, and if you read these debates, it's pretty clear. I mean, I don't know enough about Illinois at the time, but I'm going to 
trust the politicians here, that the southern part of the state is more pro-slavery or more sympathetic to like maybe Kentucky, Missouri interests, and the North is more influenced by abolitionists, right? So one of his criticisms of Lincoln throughout these debates is that Lincoln will be more abolitionist in the North and less so in the South. So he really is trying to pin Lincoln down on the issue of social equality. Do you support social equality for blacks? Right. You seem to be anti-slavery or against the expansion of slavery. But do you think black people are, are the equals? Right. Because Lincoln's argument and, and I'm not quite sure when this started, even though I've been reading these documents, I, I probably should know more clearly. But it's not really it's a bit vague when he started to do this. But what's special about Lincoln, I think, is is he he uh, appeals to the Declaration of Independence. All men are created equal. And he takes that seriously. He takes that. At, at its face value, that that includes black people, right? Um, Douglas says, well, okay, so you're telling me Thomas Jefferson and all the signers of the Declaration of Independence believe black people were the equal of whites? You know, nonsense. He, so Douglas has taken it more like a constructionist view, like let's put ourselves in the mind of the founders when they signed it, right? Which probably didn't include black people. Lincoln is taking the more open and, and liberal reading of the Declaration of Independence as a kind of immortal text that's outside of time, almost a statement from God. Um, and and having a meaning beyond what was maybe in Jefferson's mind. Um, although he is able to show that Def Jefferson certainly wanted slavery to end. We've already talked about that in the other series. Um, so he really tries to pin down Lincoln on social equality. Uh, he also likes to pick on uh, Lincoln, and he's done it several times in the debates, on the House Divided Speech. Because the House Divided Speech does, again, seem to criticize the founders for creating a divided um, house. Right, because at that time you had half half slave, half free, or less than you know, it was partly free, mostly slave, but it was divided. Um, and you know, he just says local institutions being decided by locals by states and localities has worked historically, and that doesn't create a divided house, right? And that's why I quoted Lincoln at the beginning, actually saying, "Of course, that's not the case." Lincoln's talking about something different. He's talking about the change that happened in the 1850s with the Kansas Act with the Dred Scott decision, that context made this inevitably all one, all free or all slave, right? He's not saying the house was always divided in the way. That's my reading of it, uh, at least how I see it. Um, then he goes back onto Dred Scott, making his defense of Dred Scott, you know, basically what you know better than the Supreme Court kind of argument. Um, and then he's able to talk about the American history a little bit. And I think Douglas is kind of, powerful in this this speech in in kind of connecting America's past to America's future. And he does it at the end of his first speech here. Um, first, he says the revolution was not for black equality. He's separating the Declaration of Independence from what Lincoln's trying to argue the Declaration of Independence was about. Um, he mentions how some states do have even things like voting rights for free blacks. Not all states do that. Some states have no slavery, but no voting rights for free blacks. And he says, this is just local democracy. But it's at the end where he says, no, let's look to the future and, and how great this country can be if we stay united and, and, and together. He said, I come back to the question, why cannot this union forever exist, divided into free and slave states as our fathers made it? It can thus exist in each state will carry out the principles upon which our institutions were founded 
to wit, the right of each state to do as it pleases without meddling in its neighbors. Just act upon the great principle, and this union will not only live forever, but it will extend and expand until it covers the whole continent, and make this confederacy one grand ocean-bound republic. We must bear in mind that we are yet a young nation, growing with a rapidity unequaled in the history of the world, and our na national increase is great, and that the immigration from the old world is increasing, requiring us to expand and acquire new territories from time to time in order to give our people land to live on. If we live upon the principles of state rights and state sovereignty, each state regulating its own affairs and minding its own business, we can go on and extend indefinitely just as fast, as far as we need the territory." Unquote. So that's his vision of the future. His vision of the future is that of empire. Right of of an American empire of of slavery and freedom not not a, not an empire of freedom necessarily but a but an empire a national empire and he even talks about here of grabbing Cuba in other places so um, that's this is I think one of Douglas's best speeches in the in the debates I, I think um, you know I'm not with him on the, on the moral argument I'm not with him even on the political argument here I but. I think just as a debate, uh, as a statement of his principles, it's one of his strongest. So Lincoln spends his hour and a half reply um, basically responding to these, these um, the pressure that Douglas puts on him in, in his initial speech. He, he for instance, um, well, he starts with his response to this idea that it's the, it's the Republicans are the radical ones. And his, his kind of go-to defense here is, the idea that Congress can regulate the territories goes all the way back to even before the Constitution. It goes back to the Northwest Territories uh, and, the, and the decision by Congress to forbid slavery in that region, the area north of the Ohio River and, and west of, you know, west of the original 13 colonies. Right. Those became the states of Michigan, Illinois. Indiana, Ohio, or whatever. Um, now, Douglas's response to this, he does, I don't remember him actually taking this on directly. I don't think he can really deny it, obviously. But he, he's, he just kind of says, well, we've, we've, we didn't want, you know, we we're in states that chose not to have slavery anyway. So it, it still reflects the will of the people, right? So in that sense, it doesn't really matter. We're talking about places where it's still being contested, where if there would be slavery there or not. But Lincoln's argument is is that actually the real radicals, the ones changing things, is the Kansas Act. The Kansas Act is what what changed the whole and the Dredge got decision. These two things together changed the whole setting of of the issue of, of you know slavery in the territories. Um, he is the and what's the effect of this? And the effect of this is it's made the house divided. So in a sense, what Lincoln's doing here is kind of restating in a new way his house divided speech with a little bit more more detail than just the highlights give you. And of course, the highlights do sound like Lincoln is saying, you know, we're all the, you know, that maybe the founders erred in, in dividing the country. I, again, I don't think that's what the speech says. I don't think that's what his even the, those pop, those uh, well-known phrases from that speech, the ones that are often quoted, are saying, he's saying that we've become a divided house, right? And that's why he said that opening quote I gave you in the very beginning of this episode where he says, well, we had, you know, there's differences in, in the economy, in, in local institutions, there's all sorts of things. It doesn't make us a divided house. Why is it that slavery has been become, making us a divided house lately, right? And that's new. That's something that's changed. And he says... But has it been so with the element of slavery? Have we not always had quarrels and difficulties over it? And when will we cease to have quarrels over it? Like causes, 
Like causes produce like effects. It's worthwhile to observe that we have generally had comparative peace on the slavery question and that there has been no cause for alarm until it was excited by the efforts to spread it into new territories. Whenever there has been limited to its present bounds and there has been no effort to spread it, there has been peace. All the trouble and convulsions had proceeded from the effects to spread it over more territory. It was thus at the date of the Missouri Compromise. It was so again with the annexation of Texas, so with the territory acquired by the Mexican War, and it is now. Wherever there has been an effort to spread it, there's been agitation and resistance. Now, I appeal to this audience as national men whether we have the right to expect that this agitation in regard to the subject will cease while the causes that tend to reproduce agitation are actively at work. Now, besides for that, I, I think this is, this is one of his most conservative speeches and compared to that, that he gives up these within the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And when Douglas gets this impression that, that Lincoln is kind of soft-selling this racial equality, the, the horrors of slavery, the, the kind of moral affront of slavery, when he's talking to Southern Illinois voters, that seemed to be the case. I, I, I don't find much evidence that that's not the case here. Um, he doesn't respond to Douglas's question about racial equality. I mean, Douglas asked him straight up in the opening part of the debate, about racial, racial equality. And Lincoln doesn't even really take it up here at all in any way. He just, he just ignores that that question was ever put forward as far as I can, as far as I can tell. Um, the closest he gets is he, he talks about the ultimate extinction of slavery, which is of course a consistent position for Lincoln at this time. You know, he doesn't quite know how to deal with slavery where it exists, but he does think if you stop it from expanding, it will ultimately kind of fall apart due to his own contradictions. And so, you can't have it spread, right? Kind of like containment uh, policy for for slavery. Um, you know, it's going to be a few years before he comes to the conclusion that it has to be ended immediately. And that's that's when he writes the writes writes and signs the Emancipation Proclamation. But yeah, this this is a fairly conservative uh, response where he responds to what he think he can do to, uh, do to the local local audience, and it actually gives Douglas some extra fuel in his argument that that Lincoln is kind of hedging his arguments for for the various audiences that he's coming across. Douglas's response, he's able to uh, put more pressure on Lincoln for um, basically being associated with the most radical platform of, of the Republican Party. This I think it's a Springfield platform that was written. Douglas has been picking on Lincoln of this throughout the whole debates. Um, throughout the whole debates, he's picking on him about this this platform that, that he seems to so, want to associate Lincoln with. Lincoln of, uh, denies being part of this this platform. It's introduced right away in the very first Lincoln-Douglas debates. Um, and then he talks a little bit more about kind of developing on his Freeport Doctrine, this idea that, that even though the Dred Scott decision opens up people to bring in property in slaves to the territories, it doesn't necessarily... Um, mean that those local territories have to pass laws that that make that legal right it's it's an example again of, of liquor um, being brought in um, so he says i assert that under a dred scott decision you cannot maintain slavery a day in a territory where it's unwilling people and unfriendly legislation if the people are opposed to it our right is a barren worthless useless right and it, and if they are for it they will support and encourage it we come right back, therefore, to the practical question. If the people of a territory want slavery, they'll have it. And if they do not want it, you cannot force it upon them. Um, so that's that's my thoughts about the third uh, debate, the, uh, the Jonesboro debate. It's, I, I think Douglas is, you know, he's he's got the easier case to make in a way because he can just talk about democracy. He can talk about the, the free choice of the people, right? And he doesn't want to talk about slavery as a moral issue. 
He tries, he actually gives Lincoln the opportunity to talk about racial equality in this debate, and, he, and Lincoln doesn't really take him up on it, right? I think Lincoln shines the best in these debates when he does rise to that occasion and says, okay, let's talk about this as a, as a moral question. Let's talk about racial equality. Let's, let's see what we really mean by that. That's, the, that's when he's strongest, but he's not there in that, that third debate. All right, um, so the second debate we're gonna look at today, uh, the fourth overall of the Lincoln-Douglas debates was in Charleston, Illinois. Charleston, um, these are all small towns, by the way. These debates weren't given in, in, in large, large towns. Um, Charleston is uh, in the center part of the east. So it's on the eastern borders, right by Illinois, Indiana, right? Right on the border of Indiana, and it's about halfway north-south, um, looking at the map. So this one was held uh, September 18, 1858, actually uh, only three days after the third of, of the debates. So it, it is kind of an extension of that debate. Um, they, in fact, Lincoln begins his speech. So this one, Lincoln goes for an hour, Douglas for an hour and a half, and then Lincoln for a half hour rejoinder. Now in this one, Lincoln kind of, I don't know if this was a mistake. I mean, I'm glad he does it. Um, in, in hindsight, because I, I think Lincoln really needed to lift this debate to, to discussion of racial equality. I, I mean, I don't necessarily agree with the way he frames racial equality here, but at least he, he finally responds to Douglas on this, the way he's, you know, Douglas has been really pushing him to make a statement about racial equality, and Lincoln waits to this fourth debate to do it, and, and he opens with that. Um, and and that's, that's where we should really start, because um, that, that's, of course, where, the, where it begins. And at this point, you know, Lincoln, you know, he, you know, so he's, he's in a bit of a pickle because at the one hand, he wants to say the Declaration of Independence says all men are created equal, and that includes black people, right? And that makes slavery unjust, right? We don't know what to do about slavery, but we should move to our policies and national policies that will lead to its ultimate extinction the way the founders wanted. Okay, that's his overall view. But what does that mean all men are created equal? Does that mean social equality in all things? Right. And that's very politically unpopular in a very, very racist country. Right. Even abolitionists, even anti-slavery folks, even you know, many free soilers are quite racist. Right. A lot of free soilers, they wanted the West for white people. They don't want slaves there because they don't want black people there, essentially. So it's he, for him to come out and say total racial equality would have made him a superhuman moral being, kind of how he's remembered in history sometimes. And we can't do that to Lincoln. We have to understand him in not just his context but the political reality of his time right he's trying to get elected to 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 the house congress to do some good right he wants to um achieve something there i'm not quite sure what he could have achieved right um it, it's interesting that it seems these debates they get published in 1860 during the presidential run, that's when Southerners would read it. You know, at the time when the, the, maybe a Southerner could read these debates and say, well, the worst that happens is Lincoln becomes a, con a senator. Big deal, right? You know, it's not going to really, it's gonna, one person's not going to change much, even if we don't like what he's saying. But when he's running for president and people read this, it's like, wow, you know, that, that even this is scary to a lot of these people. So what does he say about racial equality? That's where we should start when we're looking at this Charleston debate. Here's what he says. Quote, I am not, nor I've ever been in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. That I am not even, that I am 
Not, nor have I ever been in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. And I will say in addition to this that there's a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the two races from living together on terms of social and political equality. And in so much as they cannot so live, while they do remain together, there must be a position of superior and inferior. And I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. I say upon this occasion, I do not perceive that because the white man is to have a superior position, that the Negro should be denied everything. I do not understand. I do not understand that because I do not want a Negro wife for a, a Negro woman for a slave, I must necessarily want her for a wife. My understanding is that I cannot just let her alone. I'm now in my 50th year and I can certainly never have a black woman for either a slave or a wife. So it seems to me quite possible for us to get along without making either slaves or wives of Negroes. I'll add to this that I've never seen, to my knowledge, a man, woman, or child who's in favor of preferring, producing a perfect equality, social and political, between Negroes and white men. End quote. So yeah, you know, by any, by any contemporary standard, this is some pretty racist language, right? Um, but this is Lincoln trying to uh, manage a lot of political realities his own kind of hesitation about going as far as logic demands in his interpretation of the Declaration of Independence. Um, but again, I, I think Douglas is right in a way that he wouldn't say this stuff to, even this stuff to the audience in Jonesboro. He could have, right? He was, he was given the opportunity. Um, in fact, there's a lot of nonsense he talked about in, that, in his re response in the third debate, which he could have spent talking about racial equality and what he really means by it, but he didn't. So this, what he said here was even controversial, um, I guess. Um, now, I, according to Wikipedia, there was, during this debate, people held a sign like basically arguing that racial equality means interracial marriage, right? And there's going to be biracial children. Of course, there are biracial children in America being produced all the time because of, of masters having sex with their slaves. And, you know, Slavery, whatever it was, was not a segregated system, right? It was integrated. Blacks and whites worked together, lived together in, in fairly close quarters, uh, interacted in a day-to-day -day way, right? Um, so anyways, that's his view of racial equality in this, in this speech. Um, we're going to see if he changes, if he gets farther north, um, like in the fifth debate, uh, I think in the sixth debate too, and he gets to these northern cities, northern towns, does he push more the racial equality? I think he does. And I think he does make a decision at some point that he's going to stick by um, some more moral principles on this. But this is some of his nastiest language about, about race that he, that he makes in these debates. Now, the rest of this speech, it's actually, it's, it's pretty boring stuff. And I, you know, I could not really get into it. I didn't find too much exciting in here. He, he's basically taking secondhand from Trumbull, right? So Trumbull was the guy, the senator. The, the, remember when Lincoln lost the Senate race? Because Trumbull got it. Um, the, the, the two anti-slavery or the anti-free soil candidates split the vote. Um, and instead of really a Democratic, Democrat in, Lincoln passed his votes on to Trumbull, who, who, who sat in there. So they became kind of the, the head of the Republican Party in, in, in in Illinois, right? So this is another thing Douglas always taught, thinks about is this kind of conspiracy of Trumbull and Lincoln trying to take both Senate seats in the in Illinois. So the the way this goes, just to kind of sum it up, is 
is, of course, Douglas opposed the Lecompton Constitution, right? This is one of his, his greatest moments is uh, the Democratic Party supported the Lecompton Constitution, which was a, a constitution written by a slaveholder minority. It was a scam. It was a fraudulent um, constitution um, produced in Kansas by, you know, at a time when there weren't even enough um, votes, voters, right? And then not enough voters to establish it, right? So the the Congress then passed a bill called the English Bill, English Law. And basically this said that, you know, Kansas would get a certain amount of federal land, you know, if they basically kind of pushing Kansas to accept the Lecompton Constitution if they want it. And can, people of Kansas voted it down pretty extremely, right? So there's kind of two parts to it. First, co Congress didn't accept the Lecompton Constitution as it was because it wasn't reflective of the will of the people of Kansas. And Kansas, I think, didn't have enough voters yet to actually a petition. And that was led by Stephen Douglas. And then you had the English bill, which kind of threw the Lecompton Constitution back to the people of Kansas, where it was then rejected in a free election, like 10 to 1 or something, 9 to, nine to 1 or something. So that was the story. Um, but what Trumbull here is doing, and then Lincoln's kind of repeating it, is that there's some sort of plot to, like Douglas was thinking, like playing the long game here to try to get a... a Another undemocratic constitution through the through the through Kansas, um, and he kind of ties us all up with the the, the Kansas Nebraska Act and all that, and it's it's really kind of convoluted and conspiracy theory kind of stuff, and it, it's kind of very distracting from the overall theme and focus of these of these debates, and I, I think it's actually not not Lincoln's finest moments here in these debates to be sure, and and probably a good third of of Lincoln's remarks here are actually quoted from from other sources so not 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 very good at all actually um douglas is then is douglas's response is he's just going to respond to these things mostly um first he's going to respond to the racial equality issue which is maybe is what we should focus on and the most interesting part of this uh, he says he said quote mr lincoln simply content himself upon the onset by saying that he was not in favor of social and political equality between the white man and the Negro and did not desire the law so changed as to make the latter voters or eligible to office. I'm glad that I've succeeded in getting an answer out of him on this question of Negro citizenship and eligibility for office for I have been trying to bring him to the point on that ever since this canvas commenced. He spends then quite a bit of his time probably um, almost an hour of his time then responding to these accusations uh, of, of a conspiracy between like Taney and Buchanan and, and, and Douglas about the Kansas Constitution and all that. He, he's able to deal with that and he spends a lot of time addressing that. And he's still at space at the end to kind of continue his argument to kind of turn it around to say, no, the real conspiracy is this Republican Party conspiracy, which is trying to take over Illinois, turn it to abolitionize it. That's the word they used, right? Because at the time, abolitionists were, were still a rather fringe minority, right? They were seen as troublemakers of, of, of not the political mainstream, right? Most even Republican voters wouldn't have called themselves abolitionists. So this this idea of abolitionizing the Whig Party and the Democratic Party being some kind of conspiracy. And and Douglas, I think, very effectively, although he gets kind of bogged down in that Trumbull, Trumbull stuff, too, once he gets past it, he's able to then pin a conspiracy on, on, on Lincoln. And he ends, I think... Again, quite brilliantly, um, it, you know, maybe unfairly, but in terms of a debate, 
quite brilliantly kind of comes back to the question of equality at the end. That's how he ends his, his comments. In his last eight minutes, he even says, here, I got eight minutes left and I'm going to talk about social equality here and really stick this to Lincoln. So first he says, well, equality, it matters where we're we're at. If we're in the South, you know, he's not going to talk about it. If we're in the North, he's going to talk about equality. So he's wishy-washy on this question of equality. And here in in Charleston, he's he's kind of taking this middle-of-the-road way. Um, But then he kind of takes him on this question of the Declaration of Independence. Um, So rather than trying to contextualize the Declaration of Independence comments, Douglas comes straight out and says, the Declaration of Independence was not for black people. It was for white men. This government is for white people, right? Um, which Lincoln in a later debate is able to turn around and say, well, didn't you just say we're gonna take Cuba? You, you do know those people aren't white, right? And if their popular sovereignty says no slaves, are you gonna respect that? You just said only white people should have the right to vote in this country. It's, it's, it's well done. I think it's in the fifth debate he gets into that. Um, But here's what Douglas says towards the end of his comments. Lincoln maintains that the Declaration of Independence asserts that the Negro is equal to the white man and that under divine law. And if he believes so, it was rational for him to advocate Negro citizenship. When allowed, puts the Negro on equality under the law. No equal, oh, sorry, the crowd shouts out, no Negro equality for us, down with Lincoln. Douglas continues, I say to you in all frankness, gentlemen, that in my opinion, a Negro is not a citizen, cannot be and ought not to be under the Constitution of the United States. I will not even qualify my opinion to meet the declaration of one of the judges of the Supreme Court in the Dred Scott case. Right? Which, of course, Taney the, the, the said in that Dred Scott decision that black people don't, aren't citizens and don't have the right to, to sue in, in Congress or sue, to sue in the Supreme Court. So he ends really with uh, attacking Lincoln's arguments about social equality. And if we just read them, we just saw them. They, they weren't the boldest statement for racial equality ever leveled. He doesn't mention the Declaration of Independence directly in this, in this debate. He, he says, actually, I don't believe in social equality. I actually believe in superiority of one race over the other. I mean, he goes that far in this debate. Still, Douglas is able to hit him over the head with it, which just reminds us how racist uh, whites were, you know, even, even in the North in the free states and, and out west uh, in those days. Now, where does he go? So I, I get the feeling that Lincoln's kind of reeling at this, in this debate and, and not doing that well. And he does kind of rest on his strengths at this point, where he's been strongest, and that is, you know, on how this slavery agitation, this, the slavery question is fracturing the Union and, and how that's really Douglas's fault because he's the one who put forth the Kansas Act. So instead of doubling down on that conspiracy theory stuff that he started with, he says, well, all that aside, what really matters is the Kansas Act is destroying this to the Union and, and doing it so by spreading slavery. And so he, can, he does sort of end on a strong note here in his half hour rejoinder. But overall, I think the third and fourth debate aren't, aren't Lincoln's finest hours in these. I, th- I think the second debate really showed his ability to, to pin Douglas down on an important issue. Um, but he's much more on the defensive. And when he did go on the attack, he went on in a very wonky way and and in a conspiratorial way, which I don't think helped his, his argument too much. But boy, the fifth debate. The fifth debate, Lincoln elevates this whole thing to moral dimensions. And, and it's one of the most uh, riotous of these debates. If you just read the comments about the audience, um, you can tell like, 
Douglas and Lincoln both getting pretty heated in this debate. So even just when you read the text. So it's a good one. The fifth debate is, is really great. And, and I think in the last three debates, he, Lincoln does decide to come out and, and, and make a, a bolder stand against slavery, win or lose, right? Maybe he decides at one point that it doesn't matter if I win or lose. What, what matters here is, I don't know if he, that's true. He probably still wanted to win, but, you know, he says, you know, if I am going to lose, it's, it, I'm going to do it so on, on some firmer principles and actually um, articulate something. You know, it's not going to be the Lincoln of 1962 and 63 and 64, but, you know, who, who moved to end slavery in the United States. It's, but it's still a Lincoln who understood the, the morality of the question, that it wasn't just about democracy. It wasn't just about sovereignty and the, these kinds of, of platitudes, or even not even just about is our house going to be divided or unified, right? It's about a fundamental moral issue that comes to the heart of our values. Uh, and for that, what we're going to look at in the next episode. In the next episode, we'll look at the fifth, sixth, and seventh Lincoln-Douglas debates. It'll take, probably take a little bit of a while to go through them because they're really, really good and really important. But that will bring us to the end of the first volume of the Library of America's collections of, of Lincoln's writings. So anyways, that's going to be it for now. So let me know what you think. Maybe you have a different opinion about Lincoln's performances in the in the third and fourth debate if there's something i'm really missing or not seeing let me know um i i don't think they're his most stellar performances um but uh, i think like these rounds went to douglas i guess if i were to objectively sort of weigh them um as as debates but maybe you have a different opinion so let me know what you think leave your comments below um i'd love to hear from an expert on this uh, there's a lot of people out there who know more about this stuff than i do certainly um so leave your thoughts below send me an email um at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And next time, I'll, I'll share my thoughts on the final three of the Lincoln Douglas debates. So thanks as always for listening. Church and statesman here.